Every July, an army of white-bearded men descend upon a bar in Key West, Florida, to celebrate their saneness. Like an army of Santas on holiday, they flood sloppy joes. They fish, drink daiquiris, and generally celebrate that sameness united under one banner. These are the men who would be Hemingway. The Hemingway Lookalike Society has, since 1981, invited all who might fancy themselves a Papa Doppelganger to the Keys in order to celebrate the Nobel winner's birthday. The organization, whose first bylaw is that members should have fun, has used their sameness for surprisingly diverse ends. There are arm wrestling contests and feats of strength of all sorts, for sure, but there's also a scholarship program which has awarded over $150,000 to deserving students through the Florida Keys Community College over the past decade. It is worth noting that in a bit of a cosmic joke, the 2016 winner was, in fact, a Hemingway, though winner Dave Hemingway isn't a blood relation to the author. Who are we? Who are you, anyway? And what are you doing? You're listening to Curated Content. Act One. Do you remember Where's Waldo? For listeners in the United Kingdom, you might remember him as Wally. If you were a kid in France, his name would have been Charlie. In fact, his name's been changed many times depending on which market the book was released in. First published in the UK back in 1987, the series that Americans know as Where's Waldo was a monster hit based on a simple premise. There's a lot going on if you just look around. Illustrator Martin Hanford created sprawling panoramas of the mundane and the ridiculous, packing each double-page drawing with visual puns, sight gags, and the occasional naughty joke that would land Where's Waldo on banned books lists. Spoiler alert, there's a topless lady on the beach scene. The reader's first task on each page is to locate Waldo, a goofball in a red and white striped sweater, off on a trek through increasingly bizarre worlds. When we reach the final spread in the original book, we're faced with two pages of almost Waldos, each with some slight modification or permutation that makes them pretenders to the sweater. We're tasked with seeking out the one true Waldo, which seemed nearly impossible when I was a kid. To revisit these pages now, it's like looking at a myriad of universes folded into one spread. There's no plot other than the continuing search for Waldo in each subsequent book. But this hasn't stopped rumors of television or movie iterations of the character on the horizon. I would say that the notion of using such a blank slate of a character to power a movie is laughable. If only we didn't live in a world where emojis were about to be given a film. Waldo is Odysseus by comparison. Martin Hanford hasn't given an interview since 1990, which makes him more elusive than someone like the Far Side creator Gary Larson or Bill Watterson, cartoonist behind Calvin and Hobbes, 
He sold the property 10 years ago for 2.5 million pounds, and near as I can tell, walked off into the sunset. Maybe that's the most fitting end to Hanford's story. He's a face in the crowd now, unremarkable and anonymous, walking the earth in his own travels, another striped sweater in the land of Waldos. Act 2. Please note that Act 2 contains material which some listeners may find disturbing or unsettling. We like to think of ourselves as singular individuals, unique clusters of star stuff, summoned into being unlike any other walking the earth. Our perspectives, thoughts, and feelings are ours alone, and every now and then, the inimitable wiring of our minds brings forth something that the rest of mankind may marvel at. This is a wonderful thought. But how do we put a specific label on this collection of thoughts? It's not like your name will ever be enough. With extremely limited exceptions, the chances of you having the same name as another person alive in your lifetime are, well, they're almost certain. Unless your name is Velociraptor, you probably have a name twin. Hello to any listeners named Velociraptor. Even Davy Jones, singer of the 1960s pop band The Monkees, had a name twin, and one who found success in the same field, recording and releasing scores of hit songs and albums at that. That said, you'd be forgiven for not realizing that the other David Jones, achieving such great successes in the field of recording, worked under the name David Bowie. And it's not just first names. My name is Michael, and I was born in 1980, which means that there are literally millions of Michaels in my cohort, approximately the same age. From an early age, I got used to being addressed as Mike R. in classes. As a kid, I got a laugh out of watching the credits for the television program Three's Company. I would see myself listed as producer. I didn't know what a producer was, and I never had the opportunity to meet John Ritter. But somehow it gave me a strange sensation of ownership over the show, as if it was made just for me. I wasn't the only member of my household with a name twin. From time to time, I would answer the phone in our family's kitchen and hear a strange voice, often over-enunciating my dad's name as they asked to speak with him. I'd hand off the receiver to my mother and watch as she patiently explained that no, the person they were looking for could not be found at this number. Sometimes the call was less than professional. It might be a surly woman or an agitated man, desperately in search of a stranger wearing my father's name. Debt collectors, wronged women, bail bondsmen, all calling for a man who was not my father. As it turns out, there were several men bearing the same name as my dad. And as I got older, I became curious about the other versions of myself that might be walking around. 
living their lives, trying to be the best Michael Ross they could be. I found that one is a jazz guitarist from Chicago. Another is a professor at a university. One was a congressman from Arkansas, just one state away from me. I wondered if any of these men ever casually searched for their names, and if any of them ever stumbled across me. How do you introduce yourself to a person with as much claim on your name as you have? Do they laugh, or do they simply shrug? I wonder if they listen to this show. Did they see themselves reported dead in a headline in the spring of 2005? I used to be the sort of person who would skim the news first thing in the morning. In the spring of 2005, I'd often make the CNN homepage one of my first visits upon logging into the computer. It was truly odd to see, in a large display font, the announcement that Michael Ross had been executed by the state of Connecticut. To this day, the first page of any Google search for Michael Ross pulls up information about a different Michael Ross than the one you were listening to, a man named Michael Bruce Ross, who admitted to raping and killing eight young women in the 1980s, and who may have been responsible for more. He was convicted in the cases of four of his victims, and in the early hours of Friday, May 13, 2005, was put to death by lethal injection. He was the first man executed in all of New England since 1960, and remains the most recent execution in Connecticut. If you described any of the pictures of Michael Bruce Ross that come up in your search, you might mention that he's a white male with brown hair, and otherwise unremarkable features. You'd probably mention that he's wearing glasses. I'm an unremarkable white male with brown hair and glasses. I have no connection whatsoever with this man or his crimes, and it'd be foolish for me to feel differently about him than I would any other murderer in the news. It's strange, though, to see someone wearing your name and general description, and who even shares a birth month with you, listed as guilty of such heinous crimes, and added to the role of people put to death by the state. It is bizarre to have your name listed as deceased by a major news outlet. It seems fitting that this would happen on Friday the 13th. There are new Michael Rosses who pop up from time to time in my search. The USA Network launched an hour-long drama bringing another to the table in 2011. As one of the later entries in USA's Characters Wanted light drama era, the television program Suits put forward an enjoyable enough concept. A hotshot lawyer teams up with a street-smart grifter to take on cases of the week. It sounded like an enjoyable diversion when it was released, and I thought I would give it a shot. The show itself seemed well, fine, as many USA shows are, but it was disorienting to me. Every scene seemed to revolve around this con artist named Mike Ross, with extensive critiques of his life choices, 
and suggestions of the possibility of just where his future could go if he'd only apply himself. I felt as though I'd slipped into a parallel world, observing another person living a life under my name. These people were all speaking my name, but not to me. And the glass wall between us made it feel like I was a ghost among the living for the hour I watched the program. It was a fictional program for sure, but it pulled up a feeling that was all too familiar, that of being an imposter, of not being the one true owner of your very name. One of my favorite things to do when I watch television is to pay attention to the production design. I'm the sort who will dig through every little detail. I look for in-jokes and clues about the characters and anything else that might register as a reward for paying just a little more attention beyond the surface level. I love when there are winks and nods to the viewer. In the 80s television action series, The A-Team, the actor Dwight Schultz, you'd know him as Howlin' Mad Murdoch, wears a pair of screen-printed t-shirts to signal the last two episodes filmed in the series. During the penultimate filming, he wore a shirt that reads, Almost Finn, and during the final shoot, sported a shirt that said, Finn. Unfortunately, the joke got muddled by the fact that NBC aired the two in reverse order, but the intention was clever enough. There are plenty of little touches that come from the stars themselves. Think of Jerry Seinfeld's bookshelf in any given episode of Seinfeld. That little Superman statuette placed prominently isn't an accident. Sometimes I wonder if these little touches are jokes carried out by the art director. In the first season of Netflix's Daredevil series, a key scene takes place in the home office of veteran newspaper man Ben Urich, in front of a bookshelf stuffed with the sort of books you'd expect to find on the shelves of a grizzled reporter, and the autobiography of American Idol star Clay Aiken. Do a deep dive into the sets of shows like Community, or the British series The IT Crowd, or any other program that's attracted a strong cult following, and you'll find meta-humor and brain candy of this sort littered in every scene. When I see Moss, Roy, and Jen in their basement workspace in an episode of the IT crowd and catch a Guided by Voices poster in the background, it makes me smile every time. I never thought to... It didn't really affect me, as I'm too busy managing one man whose idea of an adult night out is laser quest followed by pornography, and another who collects wires. Have you heard Guided by Voices? They're a band. No. I have. I've heard everything they've ever done. They're good. I'm a bit of a fan now. Isn't that good? I shouldn't even know who they are. They've turned me into one of them. I am one of them. <laughs> That's why you need me. 
I am your conduit. <laughs> I am your bridge. Ich bin ein nerd. <laughs> Welcome aboard. Sometimes I bemoan what I see as missed pop culture opportunities. I watched the entire run of How I Met Your Mother, a series which was often good, occasionally great, and only became really frustrating in the last season, but never rang false with its musical selections. I heard Big Star. I heard Jersey Girl. I heard the aforementioned Guided by Voices. And even if I despised the finale, the use of We Can't Be Beat by The Walkmen was thrilling and excellent. My only gripe was that for a show set in New York City during the early 2000s and featuring a key member of the ensemble who was written as proudly Minnesotan, I never heard my beloved hold steady. Seriously, guys, Marshall would have known every word on Separation Sunday. Music, too, is a key part of any television show's gestalt and a well-executed eight bars of a song can go a long way toward creating a sense of authenticity. Think about how perfectly certain pop songs fit into moments in television history. Crockett and Tubbs cruising through Miami Vice to the sounds of Phil Collins in the air tonight. Or the way Chris Elliott's cult classic Get a Life opened each episode with R.E.M.'s Stand. What happens when you can't get the right music? you get the almost right music. Does anybody notice? Does anybody care? Few shows with any measure of endurance are so entwined with the first wave of Generation X the way that Friends is. A sitcom centered on 620-somethings living in New York, Friends was one of the blockbuster hits of NBC's storied Thursday night lineup during the 1990s. To young viewers especially teens and the young adults it targeted. Friends lived up to the claim of must-see TV, and the show gladly wrapped itself in the trappings of youth. Scripts were littered with pop culture and current events references, guest stars were of-the-moment celebrities, and sets were meticulously crafted to reflect the quirky, youthful personalities of the show's characters. Did you notice the Magna Doodle on the back of the door? Never mind that the show was, in fact, following sturdy plot lines that had been around in some way, shape, or form practically since the Honeymooners. If the look of the show was so closely tied to the demographic, the sound needed a similar level of authenticity. The theme music was written expressly for the show and became a smash hit on radio. There's already been much said and written about I'll Be There For You, though, and I'm not very interested in revisiting it. I want to talk about a clip of music less than 20 seconds long that you probably didn't even notice, and to do this, we're going to have to talk about pavement. If the list of record labels at the vanguard of the 1990s alternative nation held a special place for Matador Records, it would be completely irresponsible to chart a list of significant bands of the era and not include pavement. The pride of Stockton, California, Pavement was a band that walked a careful line between their I-don't-care slacker image and the surprisingly thoughtful craft and tunefulness that made its way into their best songs and kept them fresh for two decades. 
The music supervisors at Friends knew about Pavement, and I'd hazard a guess that they even had a favorite Pavement album, Wowie Zowie, the band's third release. What makes me say this? Tune into a Friends rerun at any given time. Go ahead, it shouldn't be too hard to find, but it's perfectly fine if you need to cheat and fire up the DVDs or a Netflix episode. You know the snappy music that plays over generic shots of the New York City skyline, or the music that brings us back to cuts at Central Perk? That bumper music comes from somewhere. Usually there are session musicians who are given sheet music to follow, and it dictates the style and feel of the transitional music. Up-tempo, slow, major or minor key, whatever. There's a snippet of music that turns up in some episodes of Friends. It's got a guitar tone that's just a little ragged in the right ways, and the strums fall a little behind the beat. It's a bid for a little authenticity, the way that Singles, Cameron Crowe's love letter to early 90s Seattle, featured extended cameos of members of that city's music scene. It's rattled by The Rush from Wowie Zowie, in everything but name. Did it work? I couldn't tell you if it helped move a single copy of Wowie Zowie, which spent some time languishing as one of the band's lesser-loved releases, especially considering that it came in the wake of Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain, one of the band's undisputed triumphs and biggest-selling releases. And it would be tough to tell if any indie rockers began following the saga of the Central Perk Six because of some sly music supervisor's wink to them. What I do know is this. When I happen upon a cue like this, it gives the show roots, placing friends in its moment in time, and that's valuable. The titular friends live in the Manhattan of the 1990s forever and ever, and that's the lens through which they need to be viewed. Knowing where we are and when we are gives us context for who we are, after all. And sometimes, all it takes to remind us of this is 20 seconds of guitar rattling something loose in the memory banks. Curated content is recorded in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the shadow of the Golden Driller. Today's episode was written, produced, recorded, and edited by Michael Ross, whom you're listening to now. He also performed our interstitial music. Find new episodes of curated content every Monday at iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, rate and review us. Your feedback is valuable, and your ratings help others find us. Visit our website at modernsuburbanite.com slash modsub, where you will find archived shows, show notes, and information about other projects. Connect with curated content on Twitter, where we are at content show, or reach us through email. Our address is curatedc at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Whether you're curious about sponsorship opportunities or just want to let us know what you think. 
Join us next time for more dives into half-remembered material and the unexpected threads running through our brains in coding. This concludes our visit to the mixed-up files deep in the memory banks. Be well and stay curious.